Over the years, one of the most common quotes that I've heard people refer to is a quote by St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. It's a very popular quote. Chances are you've probably heard it before. But despite its popularity, there are two problems with that quote. First, St. Francis never said it, or really anything like it. Second, it's just not true. You can't preach the gospel without words. The Apostle Paul says as much in Romans chapter 10, where he quotes the words of the prophet Joel, who says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? In other words, no one can believe the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, unless someone first tells them about it. And to do that, you have to use words. So that quote from St. Francis is not only not by Francis, it's also not really true. Still, there's a good reason that it's so popular. Because while it may not say everything that needs to be said about preaching the gospel, it does make a good point. The good news of what God has done in the death and resurrection of Jesus isn't just a fact to be preached. It's also a truth to be lived. And many times, maybe, maybe more often than not, Christians do more to bear witness to Jesus by the way that we live than by anything we say. And there's probably a reason that people attribute that saying to Francis, because as much of a preacher as he was, what is most remembered about him aren't his words, but his way of life. As G.K. Chesterton once said, Francis was a poet whose life was a poem. He was not so much a minstrel merely singing his own songs as a dramatist capable of acting the whole of his own play. The things he said were more imaginative than the things he wrote. The things he did were more imaginative than the things he said. Francis wasn't just a man of words. He was, above all, a man of action. Selling his possessions, taking a vow of poverty, showing love everywhere to, to both people and animals alike, Francis bore witness to the gospel by the way that he lived, he demonstrated what in the last session I referred to as the, the revolutionary implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in that way, Francis serves as a good example of what the Apostle Peter seems to be aiming at in his letter. Peter exhorted the early Christians to whom he wrote by telling them that they have been born again to a living hope that their lives have been, have been entirely redefined by the promise of resurrection. And that because of this, they are now strangers and aliens in this world. Francis seemed to understand this. And just like those early Christians, Francis lived in such a way that seemed odd, strange, even bizarre to those around him. Likewise, as I noted in our last session, the Apostle Peter says that those who have been joined to Jesus have been set free 
set free from all the envy and rivalry and competition that so often dominates social relationships. And that now, because because they're free, they can actually serve and honor others as Jesus did. Again, St. Francis seems in many ways to be a a model of this kind of freedom. And it's also very clear that Peter thinks that Christians, Christians should bear witness to the truth of the gospel by the way they live. In fact, according to Peter, that's the primary purpose for which the church exists. But you, he says in chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this, is all, this is all very lofty language. And if you take Peter seriously, what with all his talk about being aliens and strangers in the world, and this call to, to live as saints and proclaim the gospel by the way that we live— If you really take it seriously, you might start to think that what Peter has in mind is some kind of heroic saint, like a Mother Teresa or a Francis of Assisi. And you might be tempted to think that this high and lofty ideal really doesn't have much to do with you and your normal day-to-day life. But in fact, when Peter actually gives examples of what he means, when he explains what this vision looks like in real life, Peter doesn't talk about heroic saints who give away all their possessions or or move into impoverished neighborhoods and devote their life to the poor. Peter's examples are much more mundane, much more ordinary than that. For instance, as I mentioned in the last session, in chapter 2, after talking about how Christians have been set free from worldly competition, set free to honor and serve those around them, Peter specifically addresses Christians who live as household servants. And what he says to them may at first seem rather disappointing and underwhelming. After all, he's been talking about the, this revolution that's taking place with the resurrection of Jesus. And isn't this the perfect opportunity to explain why why slavery of any kind is a completely unacceptable institution? Isn't that one of the revolutionary implications? Shouldn't Peter tell these household servants, these slaves, that their freedom means they no longer need to subject themselves to such an inhumane way of life? That's certainly what many of us would like Peter to say, but he doesn't. He doesn't talk about reforming or abolishing social institutions like slavery. Instead, he tells those who are slaves that they should honor and be subject to their masters, even to those who are unjust. In fact, Peter even tells them that it is a gracious thing in the sight of God when they patiently endure unjust treatment. And why? Because... He says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Peter's instructions to servants might seem uninspiring and certainly unrevolutionary, at least to us. 
But for Peter, it was one very concrete way of bearing witness to the gospel of Christ. Most people would respond with frustration or anger or resentment at being treated unjustly. Christians, however, don't have to, Peter's saying. And by their patient endurance of mistreatment, they testify to the greater hope that now defines their lives. After this, in chapter 3, Peter turns his attention from servants to married women. And once again, he gives advice that has frustrated a lot of modern readers. Because the advice that he gives to women seems to be practically identical to what he says to servants. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. While married women did not experience the same kind of injustice and humiliation that slaves did in the ancient Roman world, their situation still left much to be desired. They were at a legal disadvantage when it came to owning property and wealth. They were usually very dependent on their husbands for financial and economic security. And and while some women undoubtedly enjoyed love and affection in their marriage, Many, if not most, married women were expected to remain chaste and faithful to their husbands and bear his children, while their husband was free and even expected to pursue intimacy with other women, such as mistresses and prostitutes. As the Greek historian Apollodorus once put it, we have courtesans for pleasure, handmaidens for the day-to-day care of the body, and wives to bear legitimate children and be a trusted guardian of things in the house. Clearly, there was something to be desired in the relationship between husbands and wives. And you might expect that when Peter talks to wives that he would address some of these issues, particularly when he makes it clear that some of them have husbands who are not even Christians. And, and I have no doubt that if Peter were alive today, and you asked him his opinion on some of these inequalities between men and women, or masters and slaves, I have no doubt that Peter would agree for the need for serious reform. But he doesn't talk about that in his letter. To the contrary, he just tells wives to subordinate themselves to their husbands, not to get caught up with their external appearances, and to conduct themselves with gentleness and purity in their everyday life. And yet, as simple and unrevolutionary as this advice may seem, Peter still thinks that by doing this, married women will be bearing testimony to the gospel. In fact, he tells them that some of their unbelieving husbands will be converted to the faith as a result of seeing the patient and gentle and respectful conduct of their wives. By contrast to what he says to women, Peter's instructions to husbands in verse 7 might seem rather short and, once again, disappointingly unrevolutionary. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That hardly seems to be asking much of the men you might think. But actually, it makes great sense if you think about what Peter has said so far. 
He said that Christians are those whose lives have been redefined by the hope of resurrection. And here, with this verse, he applies that to the way husbands think about their wives. Women were often regarded as naturally inferior to men in the ancient world, certainly what someone like Aristotle thought. And Peter acknowledges that women are physically weaker than men, but notice how he describes women to their husbands. They are heirs with you of the grace of life. In other words, Peter is reminding husbands that whatever the world might think of their wives, they must regard them as Christians, as those who have been born again to a living hope, as equal heirs of the gift of resurrection life. And that should change the way they treat them. For just as servants and women have been freed to submit themselves and not have to fight for their own honor, so husbands have been freed to bestow honor on and serve their wives, to treat them with dignity and kindness and respect. And that doesn't just apply to husbands and wives. That applies to all Christians. Finally, Peter says, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Peter names five virtues that he expects Christians to embody in their relationship with one another. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, and humility. Now, what stands out to you about these five virtues? Do they seem realistic to you? Do they seem perhaps a little quaint? I mean, don't get me wrong. It's wonderful to think that this is how Christian communities would treat each other, that churches would be filled with people who are unified and understanding of one another and loving and compassionate and humble. But isn't that a bit idealistic? And isn't it, once again a little less radical and less revolutionary than you might expect? And to that first question about whether or not this is realistic or just some quaint ideal, I think we need to pay attention to what Peter says in verse 9. He says not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. In other words, Peter's well aware that Christians don't live in some perfect world where everybody treats each other kindly and respectfully all the time. Nor does he even suggest that the only mistreatment Christians will experience will come from those outside the church. You might think that's what he's talking about, but he never says so. And the simple fact of the matter is that people treat each other badly, even within the church. And Peter knows that. He's not some starry-eyed idealist. He just says that Christians shouldn't retaliate, even to each other. Still, aren't these instructions a bit simple? A bit, I hate to say it, but a bit uninspiring. My great-grandmother used to have a saying that she'd say every time we were, we were saying goodbye to one another. Whenever we'd say our goodbyes, she'd always end it with, now you need to remember to love, help, and share. Even as a kid, that advice seemed a little less than inspiring and a little cliche to me. And what Peter tells Christians here seems kind of similar. 
But remember, as I mentioned in the last session, Roman society and Roman life revolved around honor. And because of that, it was relentlessly competitive. It was a world where everybody was looking out for number one. Even friendships were often based on what people could get from each other. So as simple and mundane as Peter's advice may seem, it actually was revolutionary to tell Christians that they don't need to look out for themselves, that instead they should be humble and compassionate and prioritize the needs and the honor of others. That may seem simple, It may not sound nearly as radical or revolutionary as doing what St. Francis did and selling all your possessions, but in a world that is defined by personal honor and status and competition, success and achievement, it could hardly be more revolutionary. And by living that way, Christians would be doing exactly what that quote I mentioned at the beginning of the video, what that quote said to do preaching the gospel at all times and using words when necessary. In fact, this is exactly what Peter tells tells Christians will be the result of their behavior. In verse 15 of chapter 3, he says that people will ask them to give a reason for the hope that is in them. In other words, when servants and wives and husbands and church members, when they live this way, people will notice. They'll be aware of it, and they'll want to know why. And when they ask, Peter says to be prepared to make a defense. In other words, when someone asks you, why do you serve people the way you do? And why don't you respond when people mistreat you and stand up for yourself? And why aren't you more concerned to insist on your own way? Then Peter says, be ready to give them a reason. Be ready to tell them about the hope you've been given. Be ready to say that you are looking forward to the day when, just like Jesus, you too will be raised from the dead. Be ready to explain why your conduct is so different and so strange. Be ready, in other words, to share the gospel.